Well, as the, uh, as the younger children go back to the time in nursery, um, I said this earlier, we're going to be finishing up the catechism questions. And in doing so, um, really just grouping in a lot of the, the last four or five questions that really ask the same thing. And I think the heart of that question that they're going to be looking at this morning is what does Christ's resurrection mean for us? This is what our children will be learning about, and uh, I know many of them are much younger than you would think that to comprehend this, right? Um, but the answer to that question, according to the New City Catechism, says this, that Christ triumphal, triumphant over sin and death, so that all who trust in Him are raised to new life in this world and to everlasting life in the world to come. These are principles that uh, may be over the heads of that age group. And the reality, though, is that these are things that we have to teach our children from very young age and up. And so what I'm going to do now uh, is before I preach, I'm just going to pray that God would use this time to begin to soften up the hearts of our children to come to know him. And that they would learn much about their sin, but more about his grace. And that in his right time, they would be redeemed and saved. And that this lesson that they're going to learn this morning would play a large part of that. Let's pray together. Father, we pray for Sarah as she wrangles up all of the children and teaches them these principles in this short time together. God, we pray that they would uh, be attentive as possible and that they would learn much about what Christ has done for us. God, that you have given us a new life here on earth, but a newer, a newer and better life in eternity as we take our last breath today or in our future. We pray this in your son's holy name. Amen. Hopefully, hopefully none of you takes your last breath today, but we'll, you know, that's what it is. All right, so this morning um, we're going to be continuing through our summer theological series asking this question of who is God. Now, our normal practice here at Redeemer is to just take a book of the Bible and to preach it verse by verse all the way through until we're in it and done with it. We started this with Ruth and then we went to Philemon and then from there we went to Malachi and then we went to Acts and then after this series we're going to go to Philippians and then we're going to finish up Acts after the first of the year. But just really this desire came from David and I, the two elders here, just discussing kind of where the church was and some needs of the church and really um, after we focused so heavily on a trust in God and a trust in the Spirit and prayer that it comes from a dependence of God that we've seen throughout the book, first part of the book of Acts, really just this impressing on our hearts, a desire to see us understand better who God is. Now, this morning's topic is um, essentially going to be the God who is holy. And if we're going to be just transparent, that's really what I was hoping for in this series overall, is that we would understand who God is and understand who God is. We would know that he is holy and knowing that he is holy, that it would lead us to understand and to know him better, to pray to him better, to worship him better and to serve him more faithfully in our personal lives and as a church. And then when we got to discussing it and looking at all the topics of it, it turned in from a one or two week thing to a 10 week thing where we're looking at all of these attributes of who God is. And we're finally to the topic that I've been eager to preach. With all of that being said, as I was prepping to preach it, I actually I was so excited about preaching this topic that I was going to do it three weeks ago, but then determined that, hey, this wasn't the right time for it because there was these other attributes that fit together better. So we we're going to wait and do the holiness of God now. And as I was prepping it three weeks ago and then again this week, 
I'm just reminded of how little I truly know personally, uh, intellectually, but also experientially the holiness of God. Because the thing about all of these attributes of God is we're not going to understand them completely. Uh, I'm going to preach for 40 to 45 minutes unless I go much longer than I normally do, like I did a couple weeks last week and preach 52 minutes. Um, and the reality here is in that short time together, though it may not feel short to you, in that short time together, we cannot exhaust all of the holiness of God. And so with that being said, if there's any questions about this topic or any of the other topics that we've looked at, I would encourage you just to ask me or ask David or reach out to me personally or let's talk about it in community groups tonight. Or if maybe you don't know how to reach out to me throughout the week, just reach out to me now in person and say, hey, what's your phone number? I'll give it to you and we can meet up for coffee and discuss some of these. Or maybe you're curious of what the other topics are that we've looked at so far. You can go to our podcast, Redeemer Church-Columbus, and you can listen to those. But this morning, as we approach the God who is holy, we're going to be looking at it in three ways. We're going to be looking at, first and foremost, two aspects of God's holiness. Then we're going to look at three ways in which God's holiness is manifested and then man's response to God's holiness. I'm going to say those one more time. So they'll be on the screen. But in case you take notes, the three things we're going to look at under the idea of the God is holy is two aspects of God's holiness. Three ways God's holiness is manifested and man's response to God's holiness. And then that last one is really going to be application heavy for us. Now, all of that being said, um, this sermon is different than other sermons in the sense that I'm going to not read from one large text and exposit it completely, but rather I'm going to read about 20 different verses. And they're not going to be on the screen and I will probably shoot them out pretty quickly. Um, and in, in response to that, write them down. If you don't write them down, I would freely and gladly email you my PDF for my sermon, and you can look over these scriptures then. It would be easier for you. Um, but with all that being said, we're going to look at the God who is holy. And first and foremost, I just want to read some scriptures just to kind of set our mind on the topic at hand. Revelations, Revelation 15.4 says, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name. For you are alone or holy. All nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. This is a moment when speaking of the, the judgment of God. And in this moment, he's asking this rhetorical question. Essentially, who will not fear, O Lord? And who will not glorify your name? Why will they not fear? Why are they going to fear and glorify the name of the Lord? For you alone are holy. God alone is holy, so much so that it continues to say all nations will come and worship you. Why? Because your righteous acts have been revealed. God is holy, and it will be made abundantly clear when it's all said and done. Exodus fifteen eleven says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? If you're reading a translation on this verse right now, you see a lowercase g there. Because this is Exodus, and he's addressing the pagan gods of the day and time. And in that, what we see, he's saying, what other God is like you? We would know rightly that there is no other God before the Lord our God. And so therefore, this is a rhetorical question again. And he goes on to say, who is like you? 
majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. God is holy. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, one of my favorite sections of scriptures in the Old Testament. Isaiah 6, 3, after this vision that Isaiah had on the throne room of God, what is the angels that are flying beside God doing as they fly? They're covering their face, their feet, and they're flying with one. But what are they saying? What are they proclaiming? It says, and one called to another saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holy, holy, holy. The sets of three there is a means of communicating completion in the Hebrew language. So these angels are flying around God, constantly declaring holy, holy, holy. This is their function. This is their job. Why? Because God is the holy God. Then Psalms 89.35 says, Once for all I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. This is God speaking. And he says, Once for all I have sworn by what? My holiness. Why is God swearing by his holiness? Because there is nothing greater than God himself to swear by. There's nothing mightier. There's nothing stronger. There's nothing more sovereign, more omnipotent than God himself. So therefore, God swears by his name and by his holiness. Now, these four verses are just an introduction for us to see the importance of the holiness of God throughout various different places throughout Scripture. God is holy. You're going to hear me say that a lot. And unless you truly know who God is, that doesn't mean much. So let's seek to define what it means that God is holy. We're going to look at this in two different ways, because when we talk about God's holiness, we really see it in the idea that the the separation aspect of his holiness. But we also see this ethical aspect of his holiness. Okay, and so by the separation aspect of God's holiness, what I mean by this very simply is to be holy means to be cut out or to be separated. It means to be separated from. But a longer definition, just to help us kind of think through that a little bit more, is that God is absolutely distant from all creation and exalted above them in in infinite majesty. Let me just read that last part again since I butchered it so badly. It says, and is exalted above them in infinite majesty. I, I said this a few weeks ago in talking about the power of God. But so often in cartoon characters, what we see is this idea that God and Satan are almost equal. And when we're going to be honest in our own spiritual life, when we think about our greatest adversary, and I think Scripture would paint this, script, this picture very well for us, the greatest adversary that we have is Satan. The greatest struggle and battle we have is that of spiritual nature that happens in our life. But what I want us to understand now is even this great power does not even compare to that of God. God is completely separate from all of creation. Not only the adversary, but even us, that God is greater than us. He is mightier than us. He is higher than us. He is separated from us. For example, we'll just read Exodus fifteen eleven again. It says, who is like you? 
Who is like God, O God, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds and doing wonders? Who is like God? Isaiah 57, 15 says, For thus says the Lord, one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in high and holy places and also with him who are contrite and lowly spirit to receive the spirit of the lowly, to receive the heart of the contrite. We see there that God receives those who hum- humble themselves and submit themselves. But what does the first part say about God? The one who is high and lifted up. It's this uh, analogy of explaining who God is and where God is placed. He is greater. He is higher. He is mightier than all creation. Hosea eleven nine. I will not exalt, execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man. The Holy One is in your midst, and I will come in wrath. God is not like man. Just to kind of paint this picture a little bit more. When God revealed himself in the Old Testament, he lands on a mountain called Sinai. And the people of God are so fearful to even get close to the mountain because God is so separated from them. But then we also see that even in this moment where God is separated from them, you see Moses going up. But how does Moses respond when he comes down? He is glowing so much so that it calls the people around him to be afraid. God is holy, and God being holy, part of that definition is that he is separate from all other creation. He is distinct from them. Why? Because God was not created. God is the God who creates. God is the God who is immutable. God is the God who knows, knew, and decrees. God is a God who is sovereignly doing his will. God is separate from all of creation because God is God. But we also see a second form of holiness, an idea of us understanding it. And this is probably what you think of when you think of holiness more than the separation aspect. And it's the ethical aspect of holiness. Simply that God's holiness can have no communion with sin. That a holy God has no communion with sin. Now we're going to get to some good news in a little bit and talk about how God reveals himself in in his holiness by the cross. But before then, we're going to see this ethical aspect of his holiness by meaning that God is separate from sin. Job 34, 10. Therefore, hear me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God that he should do wickedness and from the Almighty that he should do wrong. Job is responding to to terrible things in his life. And he's declaring that God is not the author of these things. God is not a God who does wickedness. God is not a God who does wrong. God is separated from sin. He is not a God who sins. James would tell us the same thing. That we are not tempted by God, for God is not tempted. Habakkuk 1.13 You are pure eyes and see evil, cannot look at wrong. I'm going to stop there. There's more to the verse, but not to muddy up the water. We're going to stop there. It says, you who are pure eyes 
to, than to see evil, it cannot look at wrong. God is separated from sin. He is separated from all of creation. But God does not sin. God does not have error. God does not have fault. God is holy in his separation, but God is holy in his ethical aspect. And the reason why we have ethics, the reason why we have sin, and we're going to look at this in details in just a moment, is because God is holy. The reason why it's wrong to lie is because a holy God said it is wrong to lie. The reason why it is wrong for us to steal, kill, kill or covet, or disobey our parents, or take the Lord's name in vain, or keep the, not keep the Sabbath day holy. Why are all of those things sinful? Is because they're a byproduct of a holy God that has provided them to us. God is holy. God was, is without error. God is without fault. God is separated from all creation. So, some simple definitions there for us. But then it leads us to asking another question. And it is, is how do we know that God is holy? Well, we could go back to the first four verses I read. And three out of the four verses declared that how God made his, his holiness manifested. But for us this morning, I want to see this in three ways. I want to see three ways in which God's holiness is manifested. And the first one is in his works. Psalms 145, 17 says, The Lord is righteous in all of his ways and kind in all of his works. God's righteous in all of his ways. The way in which God reveals his holiness is by his works. We've looked at a few weeks ago a God who knew, knows, and decrees. And then last week we looked at a God who is sovereign and a God who is most powerful and supreme. And everything in which God does, God is declaring his holiness. He is not doing something wrongly or at fault. God is declaring his holiness by in which he, what he does. In the smallest of things, in the largest of things. Genesis 1.31 God saw everything that he had made. This is after creation. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and then there was morning, the sixth day. Why is it that God was able to create something from nothing that was very good? It's because God is holy, and his creation is a display of his holiness. Ecclesiastes 7.29. Ecclesiastes is a very interesting book of the Bible. I love it. It's quite dark sometimes and quite vanity, the vanity, right? Um, Ecclesiastes 7.29 says, See this alone. I found that God made man upright and they have sought out many schemes. That God created man upright, without sin, without error, without fault. We see this in Adam. We see this in Eve. They were made without sin until they committed sin against God. And we see that after that, says that they have sought out many schemes. That after they have sinned, they continue to sin. But the question would stand, if God has made man upright, if God made Adam and Eve without sin, how could a God who is sinful make a man who is sinless? It's not possible. If God is without sin, then he creates a a person without sin. But if God has sinned, there's no way he can create a perfect being. 
This is why after Adam and Eve sinned and sin was imputed to the world because sin naturally comes from sin. So the first way in which we see that the holiness of God manifested is by his works. The second one is by his law. We're going to look at this in kind of two ways, generally, uh, two ways. And then we'll just look at some very general verses here. But the first and foremost, when we think of the law, we, we have to think of it in two ways. And uh, me and Aaron and Micah have been walking through Romans, and uh, a few of you guys have joined us in that process, just jumping in with us. Uh, and in that, what we've, we've really come to this conclusion in Romans chapter 2 and 7 and various other places, where there's two forms of law. And so often we think of the law as only as Old Testament, maybe even the Pentateuch, or maybe even the tablets that came down from the mountain. Or maybe you think of the law as simply the Ten Commandments. But there's more to it than that, right? The law is in two forms. The law, first and foremost, written on the hearts of man. See, Romans chapter 2, verse 15, says they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. While their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. That God writes his law on our hearts. Romans chapter 1 says this is why that everyone will be considered uh, uh, guilty on the day of judgment. Because God has written the law on their hearts and he has revealed himself through his creation. So therefore they are without reason or cause to have a way to be justified of their sins outside of Jesus because they have rebelled against God in their ignorance of God and in the revelation of God through creation. God first and foremost written the law on the hearts of man. We don't see the law of God entering into the world until Moses or you see Adam and then you see Eve. There's a, a, a communicated law to them. But after that, what do you see another law until Moses? You don't. Abraham in Hebrews is a man according to faith. And you have many other people after him that trusted in God through the law that was written on their hearts. That as God wrote the, heart, the law on their hearts, they were convinced of their sin and convinced of their sin, trusted in God to redeem and save them from their sin. But we also have the law written by the hands of man and the inspiration of God. Romans chapter 7, 7 through 12. Uh, certainly we see in the in Exodus account where God has a written tablet that he wrote on. But what happens to that is when Moses comes down, he sees the golden calf, he throws it on the ground and breaks it. And then God tells him to then write it on them himself. So all law that we have now is written by man, but inspired by God. So Romans chapter 7, verse 12 says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if, if I had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I have known what is the covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. He's talking about a written law here, not a law written on their heart. He said, but sin seizing the opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and die, I died. For the very commandment that promised life proved to me to death. For, uh, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. And the law is holy and the commandments is holy and righteous and good. Listen to that last verse. 
I wanted to read all of that so we have context. And that's part of what David, what David was reading similar verses this morning. That last part, it's, it's really just talking about the written law. And it says the law is holy. Now, certainly the law written on man's heart is holy too. But he specifically says in verse 8, he said the commandments. And then he, 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 he quotes part of the Ten Commandments. says, you shall not covet. So he's talking about the written law given to the Jew. And what he's saying about it is the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. How can the law, how can the commandments be holy and righteous and good if it came from a God that was sinful? It's not possible. The reason in which the law is good, the reason in which the law is righteous, the reason in which the law is holy is because the one who gave it is holy. And in giving it, he manifests his holiness. Psalms. 19, 8 through 9 says the prospects of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteousness altogether. We could go to Proverbs and we could look at the law and the word of God and they're interchangeable speaking of the, the commands and the, the, the instruction and the, the, this, the communication given to us by God. And in this, what we see is that God's law, God's words, God's rules and his commands are holy and righteous. Why are they holy and righteous? It's because a holy and righteous God gave it to us. And that is one of the ways in which he manifested his holiness to us. So he does so, so far, what we've seen is that God manifests his holiness through his works and through his laws. Now, this third one certainly could fall in the same category as the first one, as his works. But we're going to see the third way in which God manifests his holiness is in the cross. Now, this one is a little bit not more difficult to understand, but it's a hard dichotomy, right? Because in the cross, we certainly see the wrath of God poured out. And in seeing the wrath of God poured out, we see how God takes sin seriously. So therefore, God is holy and righteous. But we also see the death of the holy and righteous one. Let's look at some verses. Proverbs chapter 3 verse 32. says, For the devious person is an ambition to the Lord and the upright or in his confidence. Proverbs 15, 26. The thoughts of the wicked of an ambitions of the Lord, but gracious words are pure. Nahum 1, 2, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging a wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Why am I reading these three verses about the wrath of God? The, why am I reading about the abomination of the Lord or the wickedness of man? Because in the picture of the cross, we see God's wrath poured out on sin. And the reason why in which God pours his wrath out on sin is because God is a holy God who takes sin very seriously. Why? Because he is separated from sin. He can have nothing to do with that. And so there's a dichotomy on Jesus's death on the cross that I will never understand, but I find much joy in. And that is this. 
that in some way and somehow a perfect and holy God that is made up in three persons, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, that is perfectly united from eternity past and even united in this moment, in some way, somehow, the Father looks on the Son and not sees His Son, but sees the sins of man and seeing the sins of man pulls His wrath out on His Son. How can God do that? I don't know. But what I do know is in that moment, as A.W. Pink says, how hateful sin must be to God for him to punish it to the utmost extent when it was imputed to his son. In the moment in which Christ has the wrath of God poured out upon him for the sins of all who would believe and trust in him. In that moment, we see the wickedness of man at his highest and the righteousness of God at his highest. But we also see the grace of God at his highest. That God would so much so in eternity past desire to save people that he would send his only son to take on that wrath. Why? Because he was the only one that could take the wrath of God and survive it and conquer it and live in a way that would bring redemption to all who would believe in him. Why? Because God is separate from sin and Jesus is God. Jesus had no sin. He had no fault. He had no error. He was a holy and righteous God in the flesh. And he conquered it. And when he conquered it, the wrath of his father was poured out upon him. And in that we see the height of God's holiness displayed. That so much so that when the evilness of sin was placed on him, he saw not his son, but he saw the sins of humanity. Hebrews 9.22 says it this way. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. If there is no shedding of blood of Jesus, what I want us to understand is there would be no purification of sin. None whatsoever. If you go back to the Old Testament, all of the the purification that was provided by the, the blood of animals was to cover their sins, not for an eternity, but as in a faith action that they would eventually be covered by the blood of Christ. Without Christ's sacrifice, there was no hope for anyone. There was no redemption for anyone. So at the cross and in the action of the cross, what we see is the greatest holiness of God displayed. Can we not rejoice in that? We may not understand why God would do that. We may not understand how God did that. We may not understand how any of that works in its completeness. But can we not rejoice in knowing that when God sees us now as people who have been redeemed by Christ, can we not rejoice in knowing that he does not longer, no longer sees my sins, but sees the righteousness of his son? Why? Because he saw my sin when he poured his wrath out on his son. Or maybe you're here and you don't know this Jesus. Maybe this would be the moment where God is pulling you to himself and he's revealing, hey, look, you need to know this Jesus. He is the only way you can be saved. He is the only way you can be holy. As I am holy. And so with that being said, the last part that I want to look at this morning is three things again, is man's response to God's holiness. Now, I could go back and I could just expose why we're doing this series. But I think when we look at the holiness of God specifically, 
it tells us to three things. First and foremost, that we respond with reverence. You can put the word fear there, with fear and reverence. Um, because when we truly understand how holy God is and how sinful we are, then we naturally fear and have reverence for that God. Why? Because compared to him, we have no reason to live. Compared to his holiness and because we have sinned against him so much, we deserve his wrath. So our first response has to be with reverence and fear. Psalms, one, uh, Psalms 89, 7 says, a, great, a God greatly to be feared in the counsel of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him. A God greatly to be feared. We should fear the Lord. And we could backpedal on the fear of the Lord and you could say that it's only reverence. But when you look in scripture, you see moments where there, there was a natural fear of Jesus and the Lord where it caused man to be just puddles of substance. When you look at Revelation chapter 1 and 2, when Jesus comes up and he, he, he addresses John, John just falls to the ground stiff as a board. Why? Because he's experiencing a holy God. Moses, when he walks onto a piece of dirt that has a bush burning around it and hears the voice of the Lord, what does God tell him to do? To take his sandals off. Why? Because he's on holy ground. He should remove the, the filth from his life. Isaiah chapter 6, we looked at it a little bit ago. What is Isaiah's response? When just seeing a vision of God's throne, woe is me. Which means I am dead. I am unworthy. I should not be here. And then he says, woe is me. And what does God do? He, God, he provides a, a way of redemption in that moment by touching his lips with a, a burning coal. So we can backpedal and say fear is simply reverence. But there's certainly a fear aspect to reverence because God is holy and we're not. Psalms 99.5 says, Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Psalms 2.11, To serve the Lord with fear and rejoicing, with trembling. You can't bypass these words and not think that he's not actually talking about some form of fear. It's not a fear out of an angry God that desires to kill us if we just mess up one time. But it's a fear in knowing that God is holy and we're deserving of that wrath. And we respond with worship and with rejoicing. Why? Because he decided to redeem us anyway. A.W. Pink, I mentioned him a moment ago. He says this. He says, the more our hearts are awed with the uh, holiness of God, the more acceptable with our approach unto him. But not only should we respond to God with fear and reverence, but we should be conformed to him. What I mean by this. Well, let me read the verse before I get ahead of myself. First Peter, chapter one, 15 through 16. But as he has called you is holy. If God has called you, he is holy is what he's saying here. He says also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. If God is the holy God that has redeemed us and saved us through Christ Jesus, he is calling us to that same holiness. He's calling us to that same standard of living. Now, certainly you heard me before we started the service, read Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, talking about resting in Jesus when we fail and when we sin, when we fall short. 
But that doesn't mean that we have an scapegoat in not living a holy life. We are called to be holy because God is holy. If the holy God surrendered his own life so that we can be redeemed and saved, shouldn't we desire to live in that same holiness? This means when we have unconfessed sins in our lives, we have to confess it. This means when we've done something wrong to those around us or to someone we don't even know, we have to seek out the the righteousness and the, the justness of God. This means that when we're warring with sin, we don't avoid sin because it's going to hurt someone else in our life, but we avoid sin because it's a sin against a holy and righteous God. Yes, I should not lie to Noah because I love Noah and lying to him would be wrong. First time I told you I love you, Noah. Um, I don't lie to Noah because lying to Noah is sinning against God who called me not to lie. I don't cheat on my wife, not because I love Sarah. Now, certainly that is a primary reason why I do not cheat on Sarah. But I don't cheat on Sarah because to commit adultery is committing a sin against God. So often I think that we have this backwards and we think of sin first and foremost of how it affects those around us rather than affecting the God who has created us and called us to himself. The reason being very simply is because we see those around us. We see the physical hurt, the physical pain. We see the emotional pain. But what we need to see first and foremost is the holiness of God that we're rebelling against. And I'm not talking about sinners rebelling against sin. I'm talking about those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, who is continually continuing to sin in their lives. We should be seeking conformity with God. Now, I told you, I speak of the rest of Christ, so that's what I'm going to do now. Is that we can't be conformed to him by gritting our teeth, by being good enough, by putting the, the right safeguards in our life. We can't pull ourselves up by the bootstraps, whatever the crap that means. We can't do those things. Certainly, those are good aspects to do. If we pursue holiness, then we should not go to places and situations that causes us to sin. That's just common sense. I'm trying to diet right now. So guess where I'm not going to go eat? A buffet. All right, it's just not going to happen. I'm showing a lot of self-control in a lot of ways, but I would not in that moment, right? If I'm going to fight and war against sin, I have to separate myself from that sin. So certainly put standards up in your life and put strongholds around you. Have people come around you that's going to aid you and hold you accountable. Certainly do all of those things. But that alone will not completely aid you in fighting against sin and seeking the holiness of God. 1 Thessalonians Chapter 5, 23 through 24 says this. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and your soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it. We make this misnomer in our lives as Christian churches so often. And listen, if 
I'm more of a reformed type guy. And so I speak highly of the sovereignty of God in salvation of man. I, I think God plays all part of that. And even in my circle, so often what we then do is say the sanctification of God, that the, the regeneration and the glorification and all of those things, those are God's acts solely in the life of a man. I would, I would land there for the most part, yes. But so often we then say, but sanctification falls on man. That if I want to be sanctified, then I have to do my Bible reading. I have to pray. I have to do all those things. And yes, do those things. We have to do those things. But if I read my Bible, apart from the Spirit of God guiding me, it is useless. If I pray as if I'm a monk chanting all day long, and there's no work of the Spirit in my life, it is worthless. I can go and quit my job and share the gospel with everyone in Columbus, Mississippi, but if the Spirit of God is not at work, then it is pointless. I can take and put my family at the altar of discipleship and meet with someone every day and every, every hour of the day and lead them in knowing and following Jesus, but if I don't trust in the Spirit of God to do those things, it is absolutely worthless. I can fast. I can journal. I can meditate, I can do Bible memory, I can do all of those things. But apart from God doing the sanctification in my life, it won't ever get done. Listen to this again. It says, now may the God of peace himself, the God who saved Let him sanctify you completely. Trust in that God, the God that you trusted to save you. Trust him to sanctify you. Sanctification, I know that may be a big word for some, but it's really just this growing to be more like Jesus, that we would conform to the image of Christ. He says, and make your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless. Every part of us be kept blameless at the coming of Christ, the second coming or or our arrival to him by taking our last breath. Listen to verse 24. He who calls you, who saved you, he who redeemed you, he who forgave you, he who worked in your heart through the Spirit of God, who softened your heart so you could believe, he will surely do it. If God called you to himself, he will sanctify you. So certainly, We respond in fear and reverence. We respond in conforming to the image of Christ. But guys, we have to, have to trust in God to truly sanctify us. So as Troy comes and leads us in one last song, my encouragement to us is twofolded. Listen, we're not a traditional church. There's not an altar here. Um, I don't know if anybody grew up in that background either. Um, There's not like a place to kneel or anything like that. Um, But listen, God's holy. God is separated. God has no dealing with sin. He is calling us to be holy as he is holy. If you're here and you have some sin in your life that you need to deal with, you need to confess to Jesus or confess to others, Man, do that now. Like, if you have to walk out that back door and call somebody on the phone and confess your sin to them, then do that. Like, get up and go. Pray to God where you're at. Seek God for forgiveness of your sin. Be holy, for he is holy. And then when we leave here, we're certainly going to leave after we read Matthew 28, 18 through 20. We're going to be sent to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. But as we go, 
seek the holiness of God in our lives. Certainly put parameters around us that provide and take care of us in moments of sin and, and aid us in growing in Jesus, all of those things. But let's finally, let's rest, rest, rest in Jesus to conform us to his image. Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you. God, we pray now that as we come to a close, God, that you would be with us. God, that you would reveal to us your holiness in a greater way than any other moment in our life. God, there's nothing special about my preaching or these, this moment, God, or the outline of this sermon. But God, what is special is your word, and we've read a lot of it. And God, you are a holy and righteous God that is separated from all. And God, we desire to be with you. So God, sanctify us and grow us as we rest in you. In your son's holy name, amen.